good grief. Question everything. Today we have the pleasure of interviewing Carolyn Baker, and uh, I'm very excited about this. Thanks for being with us today, Carolyn. We're so excited thank to have you. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure. Yeah, for us too. Us too. All right. So for the listeners to get a chance to get to know Carolyn Baker a little bit more, uh, Carolyn has a PhD and uh, worked as a psychotherapist in private practice for 17 years and was a professor of psychology and history for 10. She's the author of 13 books, including uh, many of which that I've read and highly recommend, uh, Navigating the Coming Chaos, a handbook for inner transition, and Sacred Demise, Walking the Spiritual Path of Industrial Civilization's Collapse. She manages her website at carolynbaker.net and publishes a uh, subscription-based daily news digest, which is a collection of news stories and inspiration focusing on the global crises and options for navigating disruptive times. Carolyn offers life coaching and spiritual counseling in Boulder, Colorado, and worldwide for people who want help dealing with these unprecedented challenges of our time. Her mission is to create islands of sanity in a sea of global chaos, and this mission necessitates the development of a variety of emotional tools alongside commitment to spiritual transformation. So again, thank you for being here with us today, and uh, I'm really excited for the conversation. Yeah, thank, thank you, you, Carolyn. So... Uh, as mentioned, I, I've read a few of your books, and I read them particularly around the time of my thesis, and uh, Good Grief has a lot of grounding in my thesis work. I think Good Grief directly arose from the questions I was asking and exploring, and um, I went really deep into your books and, and found a lot of help there. And, and so the question that I want to start with is, in one of your books, you say that you've been researching the state of the world since 2000. Uh, that's 20 years. That's, that's a lot of years. And you've written a lot about collapse. And so I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit more about your awakening to the severity of the predicament and how you began orienting your work and your life towards easing the suffering of this journey. Yeah, thanks for the question. You know, I've always been somewhat of an activist, and in 2000, um, I began to just, you know, gradually, barely awake to what was going on. You know, I had a lot of questions in 2000 about the 2000 election, as a matter of fact, and, you know, like, what's going on here? And then, you know, the next year was 9-11, and lots and lots of questions at that point. Um, in 2002, I think it was, I met Mike Rupert and we began to collaborate and I began to write, uh, for his website to some extent and definitely follow his work very carefully. Um, and so, you know, and I started putting out a, a little mini news digest. It was just kind of to my friends in the beginning. And, um, you know, I sort of had in my mind, well, we have problems with Iraq war, we have problems with imperialism, we have problems with healthcare, we have problems with the environment. But, you know, it was sort of like very disconnected, you know, this problem and that problem. 
And it wasn't until 2007 when I viewed uh, Tim Bennett and Sally Erickson's documentary, What a Way to Go, Life at the End of Empire, that I began to have an entirely new vision. And I began to realize this isn't about separate problems. This is about the collapse of industrial civilization. And so I began to look at everything from that perspective and through that lens. And, you know, as I thought about it and sat with it, having been trained as a psychotherapist and teaching psychology, I'm just going, wow, you know, there are lots of websites out there that help people prepare logistically for this collapse. But what are people going to do emotionally and spiritually as they go through this? And, you know, I read some of James Howard Kunstler's novels on, you know, his vision of what life would be like after collapse and, you know, totally traumatic. And so I'm thinking, who's going to help? How are we going to help people who are dealing with the emotional and spiritual impact? So I began making notes, which later became my book, uh, Sacred Demise, Walking the Spiritual Path of Industrial Civilization's Collapse, which was published in 2009. And, and that's, that's basically, to answer your question, uh, how this all began. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, I, I pulled a quote from that book um, just to read it out loud because I think it's really powerful. And, and yeah, so you said it's actually not even in Sacred Demise. It's in one of your other books, but you're kind of summarizing what you're saying in Sacred Demise. And you say, stop trying to avoid or prevent collapse, open to collapse, understand it, move with it, do not resist it and discover what it is asking from you. And boy, is that a powerful and painful invitation. Yeah. 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 And that was when uh, maybe I wrote that in. uh, Oh, I probably wrote that in navigating the coming chaos or consciously. I'm not sure, but um, I think it's not the navigating one for sure. Which was 2011. So that's nine years ago. Wow. And so you're talking about collapses, the collapse of industrial civilization. Does what, uh, we often use just the word collapse and sometimes people say, what does it mean to you? And sometimes I'm surprised that I struggle to answer that. How do you answer that question when people ask what collapse means to you? And two-parter, second part is, uh, is in this time of collapse that I believe we're in, uh, does the racial tension that we're seeing right now relate to that? Well, the first part of the question, um, collapse of industrial civilization, but that's kind of the umbrella term for all these other collapses. Um, The, you know, look, name me one institution that's not collapsing, right? Healthcare, education, transportation, infrastructure, the economy, um, the environment, the ecosystems, boom, 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 collapse in every institution the falling apart of these systems, the unraveling of these systems. And, um, you know, and and then there's the personal collapse. People are collapsing personally right now, like, like crazy, you know, suicide rates are increasing. 
Um, there's just massive anxiety and depression that's taking place as a result of, of the pandemic, as a result of the uprising, the upheaval that's happening in society. And, and so, you know, it's a very broad term, but we can see manifestations of it all over the place in our personal lives and our local communities and our country and the world. Yeah. Something I've been sitting with is it feels related. The racial tension has been there and it feels related to collapse that the tension is building. It feels like it's building. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious if you see it as related to collapse. The oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, the institution of slavery that just sort of uh, devolved into reconstruction and, you know, the first reconstruction and then the civil rights movement. And some people are saying this is the third reconstruction. But it's the collapse of a system of white supremacy. That's what it is, uh, which has going, been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. Even before slaves came to this continent, uh, white supremacy was, was in charge around the world. And so that system, uh, you know, which inherent in that system is the story of separation, that system is collapsing. Um, And what we're seeing manifestations of, like I'm thinking of the autonomous zone in Seattle, uh, uh, in particular, we're seeing manifestations of profound connection uh, between people, between races, between local communities. And I don't know where that's going to go. But I'm certainly aware that the story of separation as it manifests through white supremacy is collapsing. And yet, you know, we're going to see a lot of fires of white supremacy erupting as that system fights back. Yeah. 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 Well, it it's in the system. doesn't want to go away. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Well, and, you know, we talk in Good Grief and in our program a lot about this story of separation. We, we talk about the importance of, of reconnecting to yourself and to others and to the natural world and, and how that seems to be the sort of crux of the predicament. You know, we're, we're trying to constantly dig deeper and say, when, how can we live in alignment? How can we actually live our values and with integrity? And it just seems like our massive environmental problems and then the mass uh, mass racial inequalities and despairs are all seeded in that story of separation and so i'm really grateful that you've named it we can't fight for equality in a system where inequality is built into the system you know it's baked in there yeah it's baked so. in and uh, and i was uh, having a conversation with my friend and colleague uh, andrew harvey the other day and and i was saying to him you know um like in your country, the UK, um, cops don't carry guns. There's this whole different uh, view of police work, and there's long, extensive training, and the focus is on de-escalation. And I said, you know, we need to have some trainers come over here from the UK to teach our police departments. And he said, yes, but as long as there is a gun culture, Hmm. none of that will really be successful. And so I think we have to address that issue, which is the ultimate in separation. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up Andrew because uh, you have worked closely with him many times. How did that relationship 
form. And uh, can you tell us about your upcoming book with him that I'm really excited about? Absolutely. So uh, when I wrote Sacred Demise, um, I was, you know, I was like this one woman marketing person. Um, You know, I didn't know anything about marketing, really. And, um, you know, I was sort of going down through the Internet and and looking for people I might send Sacred Demise to. Um, And I didn't know Andrew. I had heard of him, but uh, I didn't really know where his head was at. And so I sent him a copy of the book. And that was uh, the summer of 2009. And some friends in Boulder had invited me to come out to Boulder and do a workshop. And at that time, I was living in Vermont. Um, So I'm traveling, and I'm Interstate 80, which I know you're very familiar with. And going down 80, and the phone rings, and it's Andrew. And he's just raving about my book. And he, he thanked me for writing it. And he said, you don't know what this book is doing for me. And so I could see that we were going to talk for a while. So I pulled off on an exit. And an hour and a half later, we finished our conversation. He invited me to come in September of that year to his first conference of the Institute for Sacred Activism in Chicago and be the keynote speaker. And then from there on, we just became really good friends. And, uh, you know, our perspective on collapse being almost identical and had a lot of conversations about collapse, about transformation, about, you know, how can we really address collapse? What do we need to do personally and as a culture? And one day we're just sitting around having a conversation and sort of joking and, You know, I said to him, I said, um, we're always being accused of being doomers and gloomers. Why don't we write a book on joy? He said, that's a brilliant idea. So we started collaborating on our first book together, Return to Joy. And it's just a small book. Um, We published that in uh, 2016, I think it was. We published Return to Joy to really look at what joy is as opposed to happiness and how no matter how bleak things look and are, uh, we can access that joy anytime within ourselves. And so um, the Trump uh, candidacy began to form and the inauguration happened in 2017. And, you know, we were deeply disturbed by this and, we had a friend, uh, have a friend named Vera de Chalambert, uh, who lives now, I believe, in Tallahassee, Florida. She's near the University of Florida. And she had written a wonderful book, uh, not a book, but an article for uh, Rebel, which is a, an alternative publication online. And the title of her article was, Kali Takes America, I'm With Her. And the I'm with her came off of the, you know, the Hillary campaign. And so we read this article and, oh, my God, she's talking about Kali. Well, you know, Andrew was born in India and very familiar with the mythology of Kali. And he said, darling, we've got to write a book, you know, on this uh, upcoming inauguration and what it's going to mean for us. And so we used uh, Vera's article as a backdrop for that. 
and we wrote Savage Grace and went into deep detail about Kali and her mythology, her symbolism, and what that means for us now in, in the present time. That book was quite successful. Um, and then um, a couple of years later, Andrew and I are both profound, deep, passionate lovers of animals. And uh, so we're sitting around again one day and, and talking and said, we have got to write a book on animals somehow uh, to incorporate the, the topic of animals into our work. So we wrote Saving Animals from Ourselves. And in that book, it was not a litany of animal abuse. We look at a little bit of that, but it was really about what are animals trying to tell us? What are they here to do? What about the animal within ourselves and our own animal body? Um, so we wrote that book. We highlighted a lot of uh, heroes and sheroes of animal rescue work. And then um, we started looking ahead to the possibilities. What is the vision? And we both are very interested in the amazing discoveries of quantum physicists. And so we began to look at the whole worsening extinction crisis and really realizing that, yeah, we believe extinction of the human species is likely, probable, and we also believe that there's likely to be a remnant of human beings left on this planet. And, you know, what might they do? What might their lives be like? Um, what might the impact of mass extinction have on them? And bringing in quantum physics to the conversation, what might be the possibilities there for the birth of a new human species? You know, mystics have been talking about this for thousands of years. And so we're bringing in quantum physics with the mystics and really looking at, well, you know, this isn't one possibility of many. And certainly we won't live to see it. Uh, could happen 500 years from now, could happen a million years from now. But, you know, we asked the question, would you like to serve that yeah. possibility? Or would you like to just go on obsessing about extinction, extinction, extinction? Yeah. Or of course, you know, or just turn your head to the whole thing and say, well, I'm not worried about it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, or it's not going to happen or we'll find something. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's what our book is about. And it's called Radical Regeneration, Birthing a New Human Species in the Age of Extinction. Nice. What a title. Remind us when, when we can start looking for that. You can start looking for it in August. In August. I will be letting the entire world know <laughs> when. Good. I'm That's so great. excited. That's great. Well, and I, I think it's so important that we, you know, even though we're in a period of, of deep darkness, I think it's really important that we have some visions, even as you mentioned, even if we're not around to see them, like let's, let's get into integrity with who we want to be and how we want to show up and start envisioning what might come next in these paradigms to come. Absolutely. We have to be thinking next yeah. because these changes, these mass 
profound changes that are happening right now are taking us somewhere. We don't know where that is, but why not look at possibilities as well as the chaos that we're in at the moment? Absolutely. Right. Well, and I keep thinking about, you know, systems theory says that we have to have a bit of collapse. We have to have a bit of an unraveling or an undoing for new things to be born. And our strict adherence uh, to business as usual or to a system that's, that's killing most of us, many of us in different ways, whether it's spiritually or or physically doing harm to our bodies and not allowing us to live. You know, it's just a, it's, for me, I, I believe it's just a strictly cultural adherence. You know, it's just our fear of loss. It's our fear of uncertainty. It's a fear of uh, not knowing what comes next. And so it's helpful to have people like you and Andrew uh, writing books and speaking about the potentials for, for a new future, new paradigms. What might that look like? And I also want to add uh, one of our heroes is the physicist Brian Swim. And Brian Swim um, has, has produced a wonderful video. He produced it in 2004. I believe it's called The Story of the Universe. And he talks about the 10 powers that are inherent in all forms of life in the universe. And I'm not going to elaborate on, on all of those right now, but one very important power is the power of cataclysm. Every system, every life form in some way collapses. And it has to collapse in in order for a new form to be born. And so what he says in in that teaching is go with the cataclysm. Cooperate with it. This is your job. This is your evolutionary task to cooperate with cataclysm, with collapse. And so that's what my work is all about. It's like, how do we cooperate with this and maintain our emotional and spiritual integrity in the process and serve the process and serve the earth, each other, and ourselves? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for doing that work. It's, it's yes. been life-changing for us. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad. I, uh, you know, this this term keeps coming to my mind and I bring it up in some of our recent good grief meetings, but um, the, the idea that hard doesn't mean bad for some reason in our, in our culture, we've equated that if something's painful or something that's hard, it means it's bad and we should avoid it and we shouldn't even look at it. And I think actually what I've learned from my own personal history, and I don't, I don't want to speak for Amy, but what I've learned because I've had a lot of trauma is that these hard things, uh, once I was able to heal them or, or at least start healing them, I realized there's a lot of growth there. And, and so you know, what I, what I hear from you is the invitation that, that things are going to be hard. Let's look at these hard things. Let's not turn away from them and let's see how we can be transmuted by them. Let's see what sort of growth is on the other side of these, these really painful things. And just because they're painful doesn't mean we need to avoid them. In fact, it's an invitation to look at them. So uh, one of the ways that I've been f- framing the global crises in the last couple of years and even before that in my books, is uh, framing it in the light of the indigenous tradition uh, that is thousands of years old in many cultures, the rite of passage. Hmm. And so in those cultures, and I don't want to generalize, but by and large in those cultures, 
a child is trained from birth that there will be a watershed point in his or her life around the age of puberty where they will go through a rite of passage and that this is maybe the most important time in their life because it's going to determine how they live in the world. It's going to determine how they relate to their community and how they relate to the earth. And so they're prepared for this and they know ahead of time it's going to be hard, right? <laughs> yeah. It's going to be beyond hard. In fact, it's going to be a brush with death. And they're willing to take that risk. No guarantee that the young person will come through it alive, but they're willing to take that risk because they know if they don't take that risk, they're going to produce a culture of children who don't have a clue, who are disconnected from the earth, from each other, from themselves, and will do damage to that community. And so the child is prepared for that time. The men usually take the boys, the women usually take the girls, and they go out into nature to experience some kind of ordeal. Why? So that they will be compelled to reach down within themselves and find that something greater within them that is their true self, their true identity. And so they go through this ordeal. And it's tough, and it may last for four or five days. And it's life-threatening most of the time. And then they come through this ordeal, hopefully, and they are greeted by the, by the elders. They are escorted back to the village. There's a huge celebration. The entire community comes to them and says, thank you. Thank you for doing this for us. We are so grateful because we need this as a community. So I am looking at the global crises as a rite of passage that non-grown-up humans who call themselves adults must pass through for the purpose of the transformation of consciousness and perhaps the transmutation of species, who knows? We are a community of uh, humans who on many levels are still children. And I believe that the universe, the planet, Mother Earth, whatever you want to call it, is compelling us now by, by many rites of passage to grow up and to become our full human being, um, to become even at some point more than human, but we have to respond. We're being asked to respond to this as a rite of passage. And many people now in the pandemic are talking about, oh, the opportunities, the opportunities. Yes, there are fabulous opportunities. I love it. And we are going through an ordeal. And so we have to open to that ordeal as, you know, in order that we be compelled to reach down and find out who we really are. And so Kali, who I mentioned before, the Hindu goddess of both nurturing and destruction, is sending us many things that look like a rite of passage, one of which is the pandemic. 
you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the idea that you've been doing this work for a long time. And, uh, you know, Amy and I have only been doing the Good Grief Network for four years, I think. And to look at these hard things, especially in a culture that completely denies them, which you brought up, uh, you know, that it hurts the soul sometimes, right? It definitely hurts the ego, but sometimes it gets to the soul. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can speak to the fact that, you know, you've almost had to be the odd woman out for a long time, and yet you're still using your voice, you know, you're still bringing to the world these gifts about how to collapse consciously, how to do the inner work in these times where the, the outer world continuously descends into chaos. And so I'm, I'm wondering if you can share some of your, your practices or your strategies that you've used to persevere in a culture that's pretty phobic of feelings and, and doesn't even want to look at much less acknowledge collapse. Thank you for that question. Um, you know, in the new book, we have a section on nobility of soul. And uh, we're both writing about nobility in our own lives. And, you know, I go into quite a bit of detail about having um, really begun focusing on collapse in 2008. And all these years when you know, lots of people didn't want to buy my books. Lots of people didn't want to hear me talk about collapse. Uh, lots, of, lots of people, you know, looked at me as Debbie Downer, the, you know, doom and gloom girl. Um, and it's been hard. It's been yeah. really hard. Um, and so when the pandemic came, it wasn't like I was glad at all, but it was like, wow, you know, here it is. I've been writing about this since 2008, and here is this massive manifestation of collapse that has a rippling effect into all the systems, and we're going to see it ripple into many, many waves of collapse. And one of the things that prepared me, I suppose, is I'm a lesbian, and you know, I've been out since I was uh, 26 years old, something like that. And I had a hellish time coming out, which I've written a whole book about my autobiography coming out from fundamentalist Christianity. And that marginalization that was already there um, prepared me for being marginalized around collapse. <laughs> so I'm not saying it was easy. Um, but I had some preparation for that place of not being heard, not being seen, you know, maybe even despised. Yeah. Um, and so that was helpful. But also, um, I've been practicing transcendental meditation for 41 years, twice a day, 30 minutes. Uh, has really, really been grounding for me, um, stabilizing. Um, I do other practices. I have a good network of friends. I really, really enjoy my life here in Boulder. Um, I'm very close to animals. I have a wonderful dog who's my best friend, especially, you know, I haven't hugged a human since February. Um, but I get this big dog that I cuddle with every day. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, 
you know, it's really been a journey of learning how to take care of myself and, and be primarily alone. Uh, certainly I have the network of friends, but I'm not in a relationship and I haven't been for a very long time. So it's really, it's really been um, a difficult but wonderful journey that I'm grateful for. Yeah. Well, and again, I'm grateful for your journey as well. You've been a, a, a mentor behind the pages of books for me and, and for what would become good grief for some time. And, and without your courage and, and tenacity, you know, to say like, this is important. I'm going to keep putting it out, even if people aren't going to take it seriously right now. Like these tools will be out there when a pandemic happens in yeah. several years from now, you know, it's, yeah, it's exactly. been a gift. It's yeah. been a real gift. So Laura and I both experienced depression and anxiety, and I've noticed that that can occasionally keep us from doing our grounding practices. And so my question is, if you've had experiences where your inner darkness gets unbearable, and what resilience strategies do you employ when your typical resilience strategies seem unreachable or impractical? Well, one that's real familiar to you is grieving. And, um, you know, whenever I feel quote unquote down, my go-to is grief. You know, what is the sorrow? When I'm angry, when I'm fearful, what's the sorrow that's under this? Now, I'm not saying that grieving is the antidote for everything. But for me, it's usually the first go-to. Because uh, my anger or my fear is usually covering up a trauma that I need to grieve or, or somehow uh, building a wall so that I don't have to feel the sorrow. So I really allow myself to grieve as much as I can. And, and then get the body moving. Um, the more I exercise, the more I move my body, the more it seems like I have access to whatever's bothering me. So it doesn't have to become full-blown depression or a full-blown knockout for a few days, you know. Um, not saying that's always true. Another thing is I really watch my dreams and work with my dreams. I've been having some crazy dreams, as I'm sure you have and most people have uh, during these last six months. Um, and some of them I work with and I get messages from and others it's like, well, that was really bizarre. I don't get it. Um, but, you know, and then coming back to just the inner work that I've done over the years and drawing on that. Um, and we can all do that, whatever our inner work has been coming back to that, drawing from that well of inner work and spiritual practice that we already have. And then doing, doing, taking action, not just uh, focusing on what I need, but okay, I'm depressed today. Who can I help? Yeah. You know, does, are there a bunch of people that, you know, need me to go to the grocery store for them? Um, I have friends in Taos that I'm going to be visiting and staying with next week. And, um, you know, they're collecting food for an organization that is 
sending food to the Navajo reservation in New Mexico. And so they're putting a lot of energy into that. Um, you know, is this time for me to adopt an animal? Or could I be volunteering uh, down at the shelter? Now, a lot of shelters are empty right now, but could I be fostering an animal? Um, you know, there are like endless things we can be doing. There is no shortage of how we can be showing up as activists in our community. Yeah. So those are some ways that I deal. Thank you for that. My next question for you, because you, you touched on grief, which obviously has a soft spot for us. You know, you do a lot of programming, you do a lot of offerings, uh, whether they're workshops or now, you know, we're all relegated to the digital realm. Um, but I know you have an upcoming program called Journey of Grief. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, my colleague and friend Terry Chapman and I just finished a seven-week online series, The Journey of Grief, and uh, we're taking a week break, and then we're going to start up again with that same series. And it's really about um, what is grief, and what is the journey with it, and what is the journey with anything. And so we just kind of go through uh, what it is like to make a spiritual journey or an emotional journey and what's involved. What are the stopping points along the way? And we provide people with endless resources on the website. And we also, uh, we have uh, uh, 90, it'll be seven 90 minute sessions. And this time, instead of having it in the evening, we're having it um, during the day. It'll start at 12 noon Eastern time on Mondays. And you can go to um, alliesonthejourney.com, alliesonthejourney.com, and go to the tab that says offerings, and then scroll down to the journey of grief. And everything you wanna know about the series is there as well as a place to register. Great, great. We'll include that on the show notes for sure, because there's uh, we need to be doing grieving. Yeah. Yes, yes. So we're wondering if you have any advice for someone who's new to this work and the work of collapse, looking at these hard truths, inner work and resilience building topics. Uh, what, what can you tell someone new to this and worried that it feels like too much? Yeah. Well, it can be too much at times. So I would say go slowly and um, take breaks from the news if you need to. Really respect your, your own um, trajectory. And uh, there's a word in trauma work that's used a lot, titrate your experience. Uh, take it a little at a time. Don't allow yourself to get overwhelmed. And very importantly, you have to have allies. You have to have people you can talk to right now online, exclusively pretty much. Um, you may or may not have people in your household that you can talk with, but you certainly need allies online. Um, there are, of course, books to read and videos to watch ad infinitum. Um, but just really respect taking care of yourself and going slowly. And, um, you know, have some kind of spiritual practice, something that allows you to really touch in with beauty, 
with gratitude, with creativity, and especially with nature. Uh, this is a time to fall in love with and deepen your marriage with nature. Really, really is important. Not just because someday we may not have it, but because it restores us and supports us. You know, I'm going to be publishing or, or putting out an article today. I didn't write it, but um, an article from scientists about if we want to stop pandemics, we have to heal our relationship with nature. That's a fact. That's not some airy theory, uh, touchy-feely theory. It's like, you know, I mean, when I said early on in the, in, the, in the whole pandemic journey, it was like I said early on, if we destroy millions of species or hundreds of species even, whose job is to protect us from, from these organisms that create disease, what do we think is going to happen, right? And then with the melting ice we have in the permafrost, all kinds of organisms that can potentially cause viruses. So healing that relationship with nature is going to go a long way to preventing pandemics. Although, you know, we just might have lots of waves of them. Yeah. Because it may be too late to do a lot of preventing. Maybe our work now is to respond. And let's respond with the love and care for all other human beings and for nature itself. You know, it's like I was listening to a doctor this morning on MSNBC just ranting about how, you know, wear a mask for the greater good. Wearing a mask does not protect you. It protects other people. Have the respect to care about the greater good. And that's hard for us as Americans, which might be the reason that we have more cases than any other country on the planet. Yeah. You've given us a really great list for, for people who are entering into this field. And, and I'm really cognizant of this going slow and being patient with, with yourself. And yes. um, one way that I've, that I've taken care of myself is that uh, we're growing a garden and I yes. spend a lot of time growing yes. a garden. And so if, if you don't have the luxury or the space of, of having a plot of land to cultivate a garden in, you know, I, I it, put it in a pot and, and, you know, cultivate it in a pot. But the thing that I'm, I'm not lost on is, is every time I go to the garden, growth has happened there. So if I feel stagnant in my own life, I can look to something in the natural world, even if I'm cultivating it, right? I'm, I'm cultivating the garden, but it's always different. There's a new leaf. It's a little taller. Maybe it is bearing fruit. Um, it's been a really magical and healing experience, especially while I've been isolated. You know, I, right. I spend a lot of time with Amy and she's great, but like we need more than just one other person. So the garden has really stepped in as a, as a relational yeah. being for me. Yeah. And if you can't grow a garden and if you don't even have pots to put your garden stuff in, your, your growth, go to a park. I mean... Yeah. Just go to a place where you can watch nature, where you can be with it, where you can just, you know, go several days in a row and watch the progression, watch how things have changed, what new birds are there today, what new flowers have bloomed, 
What new stra- strain of grass has shown up? What new bugs are there? Yep. Well, Carolyn, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. And before we, we take off, I'm wondering if there's anything that's bubbling up in your heart or your mind that you would like to share before we close out the session. I was reading a quote this morning from um, Meg Wheatley. I am a fan. And it came from a website called The Daily Good. A lot of people are in despair at these times. And this is what Meg Wheatley says about despair. She says, quote, I realize I am never going to be free of despair because this is a despairing time. This is a time worthy of despair. But the difference is I'm not afraid of my despair. I recognize it's part of the price I pay for being awake, and therefore I also know I have other alternatives to act. Those alternatives are, if I'm witnessing all of this despair, how can I serve? How can I get out of myself and the self-protection and just find ways to be of service? What can I offer? And what we're really offering to ourselves and need to offer is the reminder of what it means to be a good human being. It's getting that simple for me. Yeah. Thank you for that. Thank you. And thank you to Margaret Wheatley for those words. Yeah. As, uh, as you know, and as Margaret Wheatley knows, we're all just trying to create some islands of sanity. Uh, yeah. moving forward. And as Ram Dass said, we're all just walking each other home. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. Absolutely. Love that. And uh, I just want to thank you for your integrity, Carolyn. And uh, the word renegade comes to mind when I think of you. And I really respect that about you. And sometimes this work that Laura and I are doing feels like too much. And then I remember you've been doing it since I was 12 years old. And if you can keep doing it, then by golly, so can I. Like, thank God for that integrity and stamina you continue to carry with you in your work. Thank you. We are strong women. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Thank well, you thank so you. much for interviewing me. Yeah, it was our you. pleasure. All our right. pleasure. The work that Good Grief Network is doing would be impossible without the support and encouragement of people like Brooke Willis, Allie Harbertson, Jesse Ann Baines, Tiffany Ralston, Terry Dance Bennett, Bobby Mooney, Bill Grable, Eric Garza, and Andrea Taylor, and many more people who support us and encourage us every day. Thank you for your support. Thank you for your belief in Good Grief Network. Thank you for listening to Why, a Good Grief Network podcast with Amy Lewis Rowe and Laura Schmidt. Thank you to all of our patrons who donate money every month so that we can continue to build the Good Grief Network. If you're interested in becoming a patron or donor, please visit our website at goodgriefnetwork.org.